Good morning to everyone. It is good to be here. We're thankful for a day of life, and we're especially thankful for another Lord's Day. This morning, as you can see on the PowerPoint, I want to talk about a very well-known character in the New Testament, and that is the man that we typically refer to or commonly refer to simply as the thief on the cross. Now, when we say that, we recognize which one we're talking about. We're talking about the one who was saved. There were actually two thieves that were crucified next to Jesus, but that's how we know him. We have to call him that because we don't know his name. We know very, very little about the man, and yet while he only is found in just a very small handful of scriptures, and we know very little about him, what we do know about him is wonderful, and it's an encouraging and a helpful story, but it's also amazing how well known this man truly is given the small amount of scripture that he takes place in. But there's one reason why this man is known so well, and that is he's brought up in conversations, religious conversations, pretty frequently. I, I have heard this. I've had this happen to me in conversations, uh, especially online when I see different articles posted or comments made. I see this individual brought up quite a bit, and I'm sure you have too. Typically, it's when we're discussing salvation, and whenever the topic of baptism comes up, if somebody says or gives the position that baptism is necessary, that baptism is essential for salvation, then one of the first things you'll typically hear from somebody is, well, what about the thief on the cross? And the argument goes, well, the thief on the cross wasn't baptized, and yet the thief on the cross was saved. After all, Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. And so we should all agree that the thief on the cross was saved. And so if the thief on the cross was saved, but he wasn't baptized, then that should show to us, that proves to us, that baptism is not essential for salvation. And again, you've probably heard that or seen that argument. I've seen it several times. And the question is, is that true? Is that accurate? Does the thief on the cross teach us that baptism, while it might be a good thing to do, as many people say, is baptism not essential as proven by the salvation of the thief on the cross? And if that's not true, then how do we know and how can we respond to people that use that argument? And what does the story of the thief on the cross teach us? Well, that's what I want to talk about for just a little while this morning is this story of the salvation of the thief on the cross. Now, to do this, let's just consider for a little while who these men were that were crucified with Jesus. The type of individuals that Jesus ended up being crucified with. First of all, we're told that they are criminals. In Luke 23 and 32, that's the word that Luke uses. Is he tells us there were two criminals that were led to be put to death with Jesus. That word in the Greek there, that idea of criminal, it means an evildoer, a wrongdoer, a bad person. These were not just petty thieves. These were not people that just had some misdemeanors on their account. The two men that were crucified next to Jesus were bad people. They were evil people. They were criminals in the fullest sense of the word. That's shown a little bit further in the fact that Matthew and Mark refer to these men as robbers. Now, we might think of robbers. When we think of robbers, we might think of like cat burglars, the people that try and watch your home and wait for you to be gone, and then they sneak in maybe at night or when you're on vacation, and they pilfer your things and they take them away. That's what we think of as a thief and a robber. But we find robbers in some other places in the New Testament. We find out 
when the New Testament talks about robbers, it's not talking about petty thieves. If you remember Jesus' story of the Good Samaritan over in Luke chapter 10, he says that there was a man coming down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. That's the same word there that is used for this, these men that are crucified with Jesus. They're like the highwaymen, the, the brigands, the individuals that wouldn't blink an eye at finding some person who's on their journey and beating them up, maybe killing them. If they don't kill them, they're going to let them die slowly and painfully on the side of the road just so that they can take all of their stuff. That's the type of person a robber is when the New Testament talks about robbers. And that's what the man who was hanging next to Jesus, both of the men, were noted to be. They were these types of individuals. They were dangerous enough that when military or when uh, governing forces went to deal with them, sometimes they sent pretty large groups against them. In Luke 22, when Jesus was arrested, uh, of course, he was not a violent person, and it was silly for them to send a garrison after him. But in Luke 22:52, Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple, when they come out with that uh, group of soldiers, he says, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? That's kind of interesting to think. That's the typical way they would have dealt with if they had some of these highwaymen, these robbers. They would have sent a lot of armed men because they were dangerous, they were violent, they were wicked men. That's the type of individual that was hanging next to Jesus. And they didn't just stop there. I think that these men were rebels and they were murderers. We're told about Barabbas, of course. We know Barabbas very well. He's the one who Jesus replaced. Well, we're told that he was a notorious prisoner. He was well known for his crimes and his evil deeds in Matthew 27 and 16. And John says that he was also a robber. In John 18 verse 40 John uses this same word that Matthew and Mark do of the two thieves. John uses that word robber about Barabbas. And so he is there. He's arrested at the same time. He's in jail waiting for crucifixion with these other two men. And that's probably because they were all in this together. They were probably comrades. They were co-conspirators. And they weren't just highwaymen. They were rebels. They were insurrectionists. The word that we would use for people like this today would be terrorists. We're told in Mark 15 verse 7 that there was one named Barabbas who was chained with his fellow rebels. They had committed murder in the rebellion. These people were trying to rise up against Rome or they were creating insurrection of some type. And they were willing to kill for that. They were thieves. They were robbers. They weren't afraid to kill people, and they had done that. Like I said, these aren't just petty thieves. They'd be what we considered hardened, evil criminals, even terrorists. We're told in Luke 23 about Barabbas, that he was a man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection, started in the city, and for murder. And again, he had been chained with these other men. He was probably the leader, and these two men had been following him. But together, they had robbed people. They had probably beaten people. They had killed people. These are some evil, evil men. And we might think as we ponder this, we think, you know, here is Jesus who willingly came from heaven to live a life of a man. And he's known all along that he's going to have to give himself. He's going to have to die for the sins of mankind. And yet in this terrible hour that is as bad as it is already, Add to all of the other shame the fact that Jesus is placed between two men 
like this. He doesn't get to go out with some of his closest comrades. In fact, his closest comrades, like Peter, have denied even knowing him. They've fled and they've scattered, and he's abandoned by them. And instead, he's placed up in the midst of these two evil, murderous men. And we're told in Matthew, Pilate put, over, uh, put a placard over the head of Jesus on the cross that read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. And then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the left, right and one on the left. Now, these two men were slated for execution already. But it's interesting that Jesus fills this middle spot that was supposed to be Barabbas. Barabbas was the leader. And as much as Pilate had no backbone that day, it's interesting when he finally decides to have one, he makes this placard and the Jews don't like it. They come to him and they say, don't say he's the king of the Jews, but you need to write on that. He said he was the king of the Jews. And finally, Pilate stands up and he says, what I've written, I've written. I think there's some reasons that Pilate did that. Now, Pilate actually ended up writing the truth. This was the king of the Jews. But to Pilate, if he's going to be forced into this, he didn't want to crucify Jesus. He knew Jesus was innocent, but he's doing this to placate the Jewish leaders and stop them from rebelling. But he's going to get a jab in, and he's going to make it clear, okay, this is your king. And your king is no better than a leader of a bunch of murderous rebels. And compared to Rome, this is what happens. We crucify kings and insurrectionists. So Jesus is essentially being equated with these evil, evil people. And that's where he has to die. In the midst of men like this. And so his death becomes kind of a political plaything between Rome and the Jewish leaders. Jesus, a man of peace. A man of love. And yet his end is with a group of murderous evil bandits. But you know, as we think about that, that's exactly how it should have been. And that may sound strange, but this gave Jesus one more opportunity to do what he had come to do the entire time, to do what he had done his entire life. And that was to influence and save sinners. Remember over in Mark chapter 2, there were some people that were upset with Jesus for eating with tax collectors and sinners, men that were sinful, but they surely weren't nearly as bad as Barabbas and his conspirators. But Jesus said at that point, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So I don't think it probably bothered Jesus that he was crucified between two murderous, rebellious thieves because it was going to give him the opportunity that day to save one. And what a beautiful story that is. Now, as we read about these men, we find that one changed, not just from his former ways, but even his ways and actions of that day. Matthew records the story, and uh, he says this, Matthew 27, verse 38, Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priest with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And listen to this. And the robbers 
who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now, Matthew uses the plural there. He doesn't say one robber did this. He says both robbers reviled Jesus. So here's Jesus who has already been mocked, humiliated, beaten multiple times. He's had this crown of thorns placed on his head. He's been scourged. And now he's been nailed to the cross. And he's been lifted up. And on top of all of that, the sick nature of these people around him taunt him. Now, I can't imagine, and it was a different time. They were used to seeing crucifixions, I suppose. But I can't imagine the ability to even stand and watch a person die on a cross. I would think that would turn your stomach, but these people were able to do that. And not only were they able to literally sit there and watch Jesus and these other men die brutally, but they had the gall to humiliate Jesus. Now, it doesn't seem they care too much about these other two men. They didn't like them either, but Jesus is the real focus of their ire, and so they're making fun of him. They're mocking him. They're saying, well, you said you could save others. You said you're the son of God. If that's the case, come down from the cross. You do that, and we'll accept you as king. We'll believe in you. Now, that may make sense for these evil people that are against Jesus. But then we read that the two men that are hanging to Jesus' right and left, they're doing the same thing. That tells you about the hardened state of these men. I don't know if they had been beaten as badly as Jesus. Maybe they had a bit more energy than he did, even though they must have been in excruciating, terrible pain themselves. And yet somehow, they find it, Maybe this is their last little bit of pleasure they're going to get out of this life. They've beaten people. They've killed people. What's mocking one more individual to them? So they begin reviling him. Luke tells us what it was they were saying. He says in Luke 23, One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. That's pretty bold, isn't it? You're a murderer. You're a rebel, you're a robber, and here you are saying to this man that he should save you as you're mocking him. Again, it was probably both of them saying things like this for at least a little while. But thankfully, Luke tells us, Luke's the only one that records this, that over the course of the day, something had changed. And he says, the other one rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we, we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, Matthew says both reviled him. Luke tells us one rebuked the other. That's not a contradiction. I fully believe that at the very beginning, both of these men were mocking him. But over the hours of that day... Something changed in one of these thieves. And what changed? What brought this about? We're not told why this man changed. We can maybe speculate a little bit. But clearly he knew some things. And we're going to talk about those in just a moment. But what this man knew and what this man observed in Jesus changed him. It revealed within his own heart his wickedness. It revealed within him the understanding that although he was dying painfully and brutally and cruelly, he deserved it. 
that's a pretty scary thought to think that you can realize that you deserve something like crucifixion. This man realized he deserved what he was suffering. I'm sure that didn't ease the pain. But as he looked at Jesus and realized this man was innocent, this man was pure, surely it made his own death all the worse. As he recognized this isn't Rome being unjust. This isn't Rome being oppressive. This is exactly where I'm supposed to be because of the choices I've made. But not this man. And so his compatriot, his companion, maybe his friend of many years, he keeps it up. He keeps taunting Jesus and making fun of Jesus as he has breath and ability. And finally the thief speaks up. And he says, do you not fear God? That's a pretty pertinent question when you're at most hours from death. Maybe it was this man's impending death that finally made him thoughtful. He feared God. Now he hadn't revered God through his life. But he feared God now. And he tells his compatriot basically to be quiet. Because he deserves to be on that cross too. Just like he himself does. But then he says a few words to Jesus. Very different than what he had said so far. He simply says, Jesus, the New King James Version has, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What a simple little statement. And Jesus, in pain and in agony, struggling and fighting for each and every breath, gathers enough breath to say to the man, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. What incredible words for that man to hear. It didn't take away the pain of the nails that were in his hand and feet. It didn't take away the pain of the beatings he'd probably received. It didn't take away the sting of death at that moment. But what hope it must have given him to know that this Roman cross was not the end. And there was something better awaiting on the other side. Because of Jesus. Now. With that story in mind, and we see that this man was saved, and thank God that he was saved. Does this teach us that salvation is not dependent upon baptism? Is baptism unessential for salvation? After all, we saw the thief is saved. So does that teach baptism is unessential? Well, no, I don't believe that's what this story teaches. And here's a couple of reasons why. First of all, we don't know that the thief wasn't baptized. Now, that may sound strange, but stick with me for a moment. People always assume, they say, the thief wasn't baptized, that he was saved. Well, how do we know the thief wasn't baptized? Does the scripture ever tell us that the thief wasn't baptized? No, it doesn't tell us that. Now, it doesn't tell us specifically that this individual had been baptized, but I want you to consider Mark chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. A few years before this event, when John the Baptist began his ministry, it said that John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. When John the Baptist began his preaching... There was an incredible response of the Jewish people. In fact, when you read the Gospels, it seems the primary group that didn't go out and hear John and didn't submit to John's baptism were the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Of the main populace of people, a lot of those people went out and heard John 
and were baptized. When Jesus began his preaching, we're told that he baptized. Now, he didn't baptize anyone himself. His disciples, his apostles did that. But we're told that he baptized more than John did. And so during the time of John's preaching and then Jesus' preaching before the cross, there were untold numbers of people that were baptized. Now, was this thief one of them? I don't know. I can't prove to you that he was. But you can't prove that he wasn't either. Now some people say, well surely he wasn't baptized. I mean look, he's a rebel, he's a murderer, he's a thief. If he'd been baptized, he wouldn't have behaved this way, would he? You ever known somebody that was baptized? And then did some bad things? Maybe even did some awful things? Maybe left their faith behind them that they had for a little while? And went off back into the ways of sin. I've known people that have done that. History has known a lot of people that have done that. It's possible this man could have. My point here is simply this. We don't know that the man wasn't baptized by the only baptism that existed during his life. We're going to talk about that in a moment. So that's kind of a dangerous argument to say, well, he wasn't baptized, so we don't have to be baptized. He may very well have been baptized. We don't know either way. But also, and that leads into my next point, and this is the most important point, I would say, the thief could not have been baptized the way you and I and everybody after the resurrection and the establishment of the church is commanded to be baptized. He may have been baptized according to John's baptism. But he couldn't have possibly been baptized according to the Great Commission. And there is a difference in those two baptisms. In Acts 19, we read where Paul was in Ephesus. And I won't read all of that. But there he met some individuals who he thought were Christians. But as the conversation unfolds, he realizes there's something a little off. And he asks them into what they were baptized. And they said, into John's baptism. And he tells them about the difference between John's baptism and the preaching of Jesus. And those people were baptized again, but they were baptized into Christ. So there is obviously a difference in the baptism that was taught and practiced during John's life and Jesus' life before his crucifixion, and the baptism that was taught and practiced after Jesus' death and burial and resurrection. There's a difference in those two baptisms. They're very, very similar, but there's a difference. Well, this man died before Jesus' resurrection. He died shortly after Jesus died, but he died before Jesus was buried and resurrected. That means he can't be baptized the way New Testament baptism is commanded because part of the symbolism of baptism under the new covenant is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. Over in Romans chapter 6 verses 3 and 5, through 5, it says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. In Romans 6, Paul talks about baptism and he paints the picture that when we are immersed in baptism, that is a symbolic partaking in the death we have crucified ourselves to sin, not literally crucified ourselves, but we are putting the man of sin to death. What do you do with the dead person? You bury them. And so we're buried into that water, but then we're brought up into newness of life. It symbolizes the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus and us partaking in that with him. Now, how could this man have done something that symbolized the death, 
burial, and resurrection of Jesus when Jesus hadn't even been buried or resurrected. He couldn't have. This man wasn't subject to the New Testament command of baptism because it would have been impossible for him to be baptized in the way we're commanded to be baptized. We can prove this a little bit further. The thief died before the Great Commission. Remember over in Matthew 28. This is after Jesus' resurrection. Now, by the way, sometimes when you're dealing with people, and this is not a, a hateful statement, sometimes you're dealing with people that are just ignorant about when things happen. Maybe they haven't read very well. Maybe they've been misinformed. Just the other day I saw a comment on Facebook uh, where someone said that Mark 16 verse 16 took place before the thief was dead. Well, that's not true. Mark 16, 16 and Matthew 28, those are statements of Jesus after his resurrection. So this is after the thief has already died and been dead for weeks when Jesus gives the Great Commission. You remember that in Matthew 28, Jesus came to his disciples and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, surely Jesus had authority before his death, burial, and resurrection. But there is an exalted state and nature to Jesus post-resurrection and the ascension. Essentially, Jesus, it's not that Jesus did not have authority before. But Jesus is teaching, and with his ascension this will be complete. He is now truly the reigning king that has been promised. During his ministry, the kingdom was coming. The kingdom was at hand. After his resurrection and his ascension, the kingdom has come. He has sat down at the right hand of God, assuming all authority. And now his commands go forth. And his command is this, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now that is not how John and Jesus to that point had been baptizing. But now, no longer can people be baptized from this point forward under John's baptism. Now the only thing that people should be baptized by is the authority of Jesus. And baptized in the name of the Godhead, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is New Testament baptism. This is the baptism that you and I have been baptized with if we have obeyed the gospel. But again, this command was given weeks after the thief died. He couldn't have been baptized in this way. He died before the command was given. And so that command didn't apply to him. Commands and laws that are given after you die don't apply to you. And so the command of New Testament baptism didn't apply to this man. Also, the thief died before the institution of the church. And that's important because when we are baptized, we've seen that one, it symbolizes the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, which it couldn't have done for the thief. But also, one of the things baptism accomplishes for us is it puts us into the church, the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12 and 13, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Now what is that body? Down in verse 27, it tells us that the body is of Christ. And we can read in other places, but the body of Christ is the church. You can read that over in Ephesians 5.23, Colossians 1.18, Colossians 1.24. And so we are baptized into the body, which is the body of Christ. And the body of Christ is the church. But the church didn't exist when the thief died. The church wouldn't exist for another 50 days from that day at least. The church didn't exist until the day of Pentecost when Peter and the other disciples 
empowered by the Holy Spirit, the promised one that Jesus had promised to send, the helper, the comforter, the Holy Spirit that would guide them into all truth, they preached the first public gospel sermon. They were preaching in tongues, as you remember, in Acts chapter 2. All these people were hearing the gospel in their own language. Peter stands up and gives the fuller lesson. And what happens? 3,000 souls are baptized in response to what Peter says in Acts 2.38. Repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins. And later in that very same chapter, we're told that all those who obeyed and believed and were baptized, they were added to the Lord's people. They were added to the Lord's church. The church had begun. When the thief died, there was no New Testament church. So there's no New Testament church for him to be added to, to be baptized into. All of these points, that he died before Jesus' resurrection, before the Great Commission, before the they're simply meant to show that one fact, he was not responsible for being baptized the way you and I and all people living after the day of Pentecost are commanded to be baptized. So what if he wasn't baptized? David wasn't baptized for the remission of sins. Moses wasn't baptized for the remission of sins. Abraham wasn't baptized for the remission of sins. Why don't we use those as examples to prove baptism is unessential? Because they are a part of a different covenant. And so is the thief. He's a part of that same old covenant. He died before the new covenant was fully in place. So we don't turn to him for an example of exactly how to be saved. Now, with that being said, there is another point that I want to make about this. And that is that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. Remember Mark chapter 2. A story where some friends had brought one of their friends to Jesus. He's a paralytic. He can't walk. And so they go up. They can't get to Jesus. So they tear up the roof for Jesus' preaching. And they lower him down. And when Jesus sees the man. He sees the paralytic. He says your sins are forgiven. Well people got upset about that. Some of the Jewish leaders said. No one can forgive sins but God alone. And Jesus said to them, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And that's exactly what the man did. What did that prove? That Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. And that's true. Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. Now, we've already established this man didn't live under the new covenant. But even if he did, and Jesus chose to forgive this man, in this moment, if he knew his heart and he forgave him, does that then become a model for everybody else? Especially when that model would contradict the clear teaching of the rest of Scripture. The question is, do exceptions create rules or are exceptions exceptions here's how this usually plays out in practicality someone comes up with the hypothetical situation and they say okay let's say I decide to be baptized but maybe we're not at the building where we've got a baptistry and we've got to drive somewhere we've got to drive to a river to a pool somewhere and on the way I get in a car wreck and I die are you saying I'm going to hell because I wasn't baptized yet? That's an emotional question. That's a pretty loaded question. 
You're going to say someone's going to hell because they were on their way to obey God, but they were killed by a car wreck on the way there? How do you answer that? Here's how I answer it. That's up to God. That may not be satisfactory for some people. But one thing I've become more and more comfortable with is the truth that I'm not the judge. Here's two things that could happen. God and Christ in mercy could recognize the effort that was being taken and the tragic accident that took place on the way and forgive that person and they may be saved for all eternity. And if that's the decision that God would make, it's a righteous and a good decision. On the other hand, God might decide this person had had opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to hear and believe and respond to the gospel and they put it off and they put it off and they put it off until it was too late. And if that's the decision that God would make, then it would be a righteous and a holy decision. The key is you and I are not the ones that will be making that decision. So we don't need to try and make that decision here. But whatever that decision would or will be. And by the way, I have never once heard of someone dying on their way to be baptized. I'm not saying it hasn't happened or it couldn't happen. But I will say that I believe that God is powerful enough to ensure that when people want to obey him. He'll make sure they have the opportunity to obey him. But even if that situation occurred, that's in the hands of God. But does that situation that we don't know the answer to and can't because we're not the judge become a good way to say, well, maybe God would forgive somebody in that situation. Maybe. And so I don't have to be baptized. When I've been given opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. Does the exception do away with the clear rules and commands? And these are just a few. But these are pretty explicit. Jesus in Mark 16 and 16. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. That's a clear command. There's not a lot that we can do to argue against that. People try, but it's, it's clear if you want to just accept it. Acts 2.38, when the Jews asked Paul, Peter, what should we do to be saved? He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. That's an explicit command. That's an explicit statement. You repent and you're baptized, and that is for the remission of sins. Peter tells us, baptism, which corresponds to this, he's talking about the story of Noah and the ark. He says, now saves you. That's an explicit statement. We could read many more, but I hope the point is clear. The clear instruction of the New Testament is the plan of salvation results in being baptized for the remission of sins. Do we really dare step foot into the judgment hall of Christ? Seeing the clear commands, having multiple opportunities to obey those commands, but hoping that he'll make an exception for us for whatever reason. That's a dangerous, dangerous position to stake your eternal soul on. Exceptions don't make rules. Now, what does this thief teach us? See, I think that we miss 
the beauty of this story. When, in fact, I think the, the point of this story is reversed by most people. I want you to think about this. Now, he is not an example of New Testament conversion. He's not an example of obeying the gospel plan of salvation. Remember I said he was a part of the Old Covenant. He died under the Old Covenant. You know, the Old Covenant is full of all sorts of things that point forward. To Jesus, to the church, to the gospel. And I'm convinced that this man is a shadow. The final example, if you will, of that covenant that points forward to the process of conversion and salvation. Consider this. What, what happened to the thief? Well, the thief must have heard. We're told in Romans 10, 17 that faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ or the word of God. Now, what had this man heard? I don't know where he'd heard, but he, he knew enough to believe. We're going to talk about belief here in just a moment. But he somehow knew that Jesus was a king. He somehow knew that Jesus had a kingdom. He somehow knew that Jesus, even though Jesus is literally dying in front of his eyes, had some sort of power to remember or to save him. How did he know those things? Did he learn those things just from looking at Jesus on the cross? Did he learn those things from what the people were saying below mocking him? We don't know. You know, it's very possible this man heard John's preaching. It's possible this man had heard Je Jesus has preached all over Judea, all over Palestine. It's likely this man heard him or heard one of the 12 when they were sent out or one of the 72 when they were sent out. This man over the past three years had ample opportunity to hear about Jesus and who he was. And he had apparently heard enough. He had heard enough to believe. Jesus said in John 6, 47, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. John 20 and 31. John says that the things of his gospel are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This man believed. Now, he didn't have time to grow and mature much in his faith. But again, as I just, he believed Jesus was a king. He believed Jesus had a kingdom. And he believed that Jesus could add him to that kingdom. In fact, when you think about it, this man had some incredible faith. Peter's denied knowing Jesus. The other disciples have fled Jesus. Nobody around thinks that Jesus is a king with a kingdom. That's going to last. Except this man. Even to a dying Jesus, he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This man had incredible faith at this point. Not only did he have faith, but that faith led him to change his ways. He repented. Luke 13 and 3, Jesus says, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. The thief was guilty. He was a sinner and he knew it. He knew he deserved that cross. But you know, I'm sure he would have loved the opportunity to live a life after this to make up for all the bad things he did. I'm sure he would have loved the opportunity to bear the fruits of repentance. He wasn't given that opportunity. He didn't live long enough. But he changed what he could while he could. He had begun that day making fun of Jesus, mocking him, reviling him. But when his heart changed and when he came to grips with what he believed and his faith in Christ... He changed his ways. He stood up for Jesus. He defended Jesus. He rebuked his comrade. His friend of years perhaps. He rebuked him. And defended the honor of Jesus. As he may not have lived a long life to bear those fruits of repentance. But he did repent. And thankfully he did that. 
he confessed Jesus. On Romans 10, verses 8 and 9, it, Paul says, The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. The confession, I've taught about this at other times, the confession is not just a formula. The confession is a recognition of who Jesus is and what that means to us. That's what Paul means when he says that if you confess, Jesus is Lord. That's like a, an oath of allegiance, if you will. It's recognizing and confessing that Jesus is Lord. He is the Son of God. Therefore, He is the ruler. He is the King. The King. And He rules over me. What did this man do? This man didn't make some formulaic statement. But he clearly believed and verbalized that Jesus had a kingdom and was therefore a king. The New King James Version says that he addresses Jesus as Lord. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. This man confessed. Not in a grand statement in front of it. But there on the cross where maybe nobody was paying attention to his words. But Jesus and that other thief. He confessed who Jesus was. Now this probably looks familiar to you at this point. The idea of hearing and believing and repenting and confessing. We know what comes next. Baptism. We've already talked about the fact that this man couldn't be baptized the way we're baptized. So how does this end? Well consider this. What is baptism? We've already talked about Romans chapter 6. It's a partaking in the death. The burial and the resurrection of Christ. What did this man do? This man died. With Christ. This man was literally crucified with Christ. Remember, let's read Romans 6 again. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin process of conversion culminates when we crucify the old man of death we're buried with Christ in, in baptism and we rise from that baptism in newness of life over the past 2,000 years there have been untold people that have died in Christ many who have died for Christ but there is only one man who has literally died with Christ and that's this thief you know what else happened that day? Some hours later, his legs were broken and he died. And then after that, they took him down from that cross. And some Roman soldiers went and they buried him, probably in some mass grave for criminals. But he was buried. But because we trust in Jesus' promise, that day he also awoke to newness of life in paradise. He did not symbolically partake in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ through New Testament baptism. This man literally was crucified with Christ, buried, and awoke to newness of life. What is this? It's one final and beautiful picture of an old era looking to what is being accomplished in the new. That when we learn about Jesus, we give him our faith we repent of our sins. We confess Him as Lord, the Son of God. 
And we partake in his death, his burial, and his resurrection through his command of baptism for the remission of sins. That's the story this man really teaches us. It's the exact opposite of the way it's used by so many people today. It's not an example. It's a picture, a foreshadowing of our time. Again, Jesus was placed in the midst of two thieves, and rightfully so. Not because he was the leader of a rebellion or a leader against Rome. But Jesus stood between these two thieves because of what they represent. You see, those two crosses represent the choices of life and death. And in between those two is Christ. He's the reason we have a choice. But we must make that choice. Every person, every individual living right now, is on one of those two crosses. We're sinners. We deserve condemnation. But because Christ has been crucified, we have the opportunity for life. And like the repentant thief, we can hear God's word, we can believe it, and we can obey it. And by his great mercy and the sacrifice of Jesus, we can be forgiven. And we can be promised eternal life. Or like the other thief, who we're told nothing about, presumably stayed in his hardness of heart, suffered, agonized, died as he deserved but worse than that worse than the pain of the Roman cross died at a guilty distance from God even though he had Jesus right next to him died without acknowledging him as his Lord and his Savior and is forever lost because of it you have the same choice as these two men did if you're here this morning and you're not a child of God You've committed sin in your life. You deserve to be separated from God. But Christ died for you. And if you believe in Him, and if you'll repent of your sins, and if you'll confess Him as the Son of God, and if you'll obey His command, His explicit command to be baptized for the remission of sins, He has promised that He will wash away your sins. He will make you new. You will be a new creation in Christ. And you can begin living a life faithful to Him until the day that you die. You may, I hope you have many, many more hours, days, and years than the thief did. But whether you have just a little time or a long time, you can live your life for Christ. If you're faithful, know that one day when your death finally comes, that the promise Jesus made to the thief long ago will be your promise too. On that day, you will awake and you will be with the Lord in paradise. If that's not your hope this morning, we hope you'll make it your hope by obeying that plan and being baptized today. Or perhaps there's a Christian here who has sin in your life and you need to make things right. You'd like to pray for forgiveness. You'd like to make some confession with the church and have us pray with you and for you. Be our honor to do that. Be our honor to help you choose life once again. So if there be one who has a need, please come while we stand and while we sing.